You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleinman. On this episode, we'll be discussing socialism in the 21st century with Nick Rogers. Nick Rogers recently edited a special edition of the Journal of Global Fault Lines dedicated to discussing this question, and we'll be discussing with Nick Rogers today the future of the socialist project. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. Hey, before we jump into our discussion, I have a quick announcement from Marxist Humanist Initiative. MHI is having a discussion by Skype on Trump, Trumpism, and the left today. The title of the meeting is The Rule of Law Strikes Back While Left Accommodation Bolsters Trumpism. The meeting will be on Sunday, April 23rd from 1 to 3 Eastern Daylight Time, and it's by invitation. So if you want to take part, you need to write to MHI to request an invitation, telling us a little bit about your interest in MHI's ideas. Uh, send your request along with your Skype address to our email at mhi at marxisthumanistinitiative.org. That's mhi at marxisthumanistinitiative.org. And please send that email, email no later than April 20th. And as always, before we jump into our main segment, Andrew and I will take a few moments to talk about some current events. Today is April 12th, and we're going to be talking for this current event section about the Trump indictment in Manhattan. Last week, Donald Trump was arraigned in Manhattan for several dozen felony charges. I don't know if we need to go into all the details because it's been so widely covered, but we're going to talk about some of the ramifications and significance of this indictment in this current offense section. Um, Andrew, you want to lead us off here? Yeah, I, I don't know that we agree about this, but I mean, obviously, the indictment of a former president is a big deal. Even if it goes no further than this, it's a big deal. What it's saying is that the president is no longer above the law. And basically, since Gerald Ford pardoned Nixon, and they had the, the Department of Justice ruling that you can't uh, touch sitting presidents. Sitting presidents, former presidents have been above the law. And so just the fact that he's indicted is itself a, a significant change. And the fact that it's Trump no longer being above the law is, a, I think, a, a very big deal as well. He was sitting there in the courtroom, and for once, the smirk on his face was, was gone. He's been able to use the media very, very skillfully. But what we have before us is the prospect that the outcome here is going to be determined by the facts rather than by his gaslighting populism and both sides as media. We're going to have not post-truth, but truth coming into play. So I think that that's, uh, that, that's significant. And let me just say, I'm, I'm overjoyed. I think this is a real cause for celebration. For the first time maybe ever, Trump and Trumpism uh, are on the defensive, you know, and I know like a lot of the media is engaged in its both sides of stuff 
and there are pundits concerned about the precedent that this sets. Uh, Democrats go after Republicans. Republicans are going to go after Democrats. And you heard all kinds of people say, oh, this is such a sad day for America, blah, blah, blah. But the anti-Trump forces in the U.S., and there are millions upon millions of us, that's not the way we've been thinking about it. People were overjoyed. I mean, one of these uh, late night talk show hosts announced it and the, the whole audience erupts with, with glee. People are overjoyed that Trump's starting to face consequences and that our side is finally on the defensive, even just a little bit on the offensive. Yeah. And the reason he's no longer on the offensive, but Trump's on the defensive is that the ground of the battle now has been moved away from the media narratives. It's been moved away from who has public support. It's not being fought on the train of post-truth. He's now in court. There's a battle with rules. And hopefully the outcome is going to be based on evidence and the judgment of a jury that's going to weigh the evidence. And I, if, if, if in fact that happens, Trump's not going to prevail. I think it's also important that Trump called for his base to protest. I mean, he made all kinds of threats. He basically tried to incite a second insurrection, and it didn't materialize. He got maybe 100 people. There was a crowd of about 500, but only 100 were his people. The courthouse in Manhattan, Marjorie Taylor Greene comes there. It's so much of a bust. You know, she leaves after 10 minutes. And I think that what that indicates is that the prosecution of the insurrectionists from uh, January 6th, even though it's been wishy-washy, even though they've been treated with really kid gloves, even with all of that, uh, I think they're scared and that it's worked as a deterrent. Obviously, I'm all for Trump being indicted and going to jail, but I've just, I've completely run out of patience. When I read that this trial wouldn't isn't set to happen until January of 2024, and that in all likelihood, because of motions by the defense and delays and everything, it'll probably get pushed all the way till April of next year, which will be like in the middle of the election season. I, I'm just sort of like, all right, call me when he's in jail. Let me know when he's in jail, and then I'll be like, I'll celebrate, and then I'll line up with other people to say, what a great precedent! Finally, the rule of law prevailed. But until then, it's just a lot of waiting around for some kind of consequence to befall this monster, this fascist psychopath that has evaded all consequences his entire life. I mean, I'm just so disappointed in the lopsidedness of, of our criminal justice system, the way Trump and his supporters are treated with kid gloves, the way his experience with the criminal justice system has been so unlike most people's experiences of breaking laws. It's just it's just so frustrating and to see the incredibly slow pace of the legal process is just infuriating. I mean, he flew to Manhattan on his private jet. He flew home the same day. He's back in his mansion, his resort, whatever you call it, having a good time. You know, we're still waiting for any consequences to be meted out for trying to overthrow the United States government, for trying to overthrow an election, for colluding with the Russian government in 2016, for stealing classified information from the United States government. All these insanely illegal things that were done in broad daylight and nothing has happened. And we're just finally getting this legal process started for like these accounting fraud that happened all the way back in 2016. 
And by the time it comes to trial, it would have been eight years since the crime was committed. And we had to wait this long for this relatively minor crime compared to all the other stuff he's gotten away with. So it's just completely ridiculous. And most people, when they break laws, don't get away with it for this long unless they're rich and powerful and have a lot of supporters. I mean, the Black Lives Matter protest, the George Floyd protest from 2019, 2020, whenever it was, there were like 14,000 people arrested for those peaceful protests. The cops beat people, they tear gas people, there's all sorts of violence. You know, there's still only a thousand people have been arrested from January 6th. No politicians, no one, no Republican politicians who egged them on, including Trump and all of his cronies who organized the whole insurrection. There have been no consequences for all those, any of those people. Bradley Manning was thrown in jail immediately. Now Chelsea Manning for stealing classified information. Edward Snowden had to flee the country for stealing classified information. Donald Trump's just hanging out in Mar-a-Lago, playing golf with his friends, DJing his favorite tunes every night at his private club. And uh, we'll see if anything ever happens for this. It's just ridiculous that we have to keep waiting. And then we get fed these little like teasers like, oh, maybe something's happening with this investigation. Maybe something's happening. And the media keeps stringing us along with these little little tidbits to keep us like interested in the story. But basically, it's like, I'm so sick of hearing about it. I just let me know when he's in jail. Otherwise, I'm kind of tired of talking about it. I'm so tired of being like, like led along as if I'm going to get something, get some status emotional gratification for seeing him in jail. I'm tired of like being tempted with these little pieces and, and then nothing has happened. You know, just kind of like wake me up when it's over. I, I, yeah, I, I don't agree with most of what you're saying. The fact that there is unequal justice, I totally agree with that. Look at what happened to Osama bin Laden. No legal process whatsoever, Saddam Hussein. So if, if there were a system with a modicum of fairness, yes, he would be treated entirely differently. And his insurrectionist mob would be treated entirely differently. That's all true. We have every reason to be upset and frustrated by that. But people make their own history but we don't make it under conditions that we choose. And the conditions that we face are the ones with the U.S. legal system and, and whatnot. And so the question is, in my view, not is, is this process ideal? Am, am I emotionally satisfied? But can we stop Trumpism? Can Trump be taken down as a part of demoralizing the Trumpist base? And I think that this uh, indictment is, is part of that. I mean, there are all these complaints and, and you, you've you reiterated uh, some of them. Oh, you know, he's being indicted for a sex scandal, not something really important. What I say is the more the merrier. This is likely to be, we don't know yet, of course, but it's likely to be just one of several indictments, three or four criminal prosecutions, multiple civil suits. And looking back, People are going to look at the whole ball of wax, not which came first, which came second. What's going to be remembered is the likely fact that there's going to be multiple prosecutions of Trump's multiple crimes. I would be surprised if there's not one more, at least, criminal indictment, maybe two. And to me, the important thing is to take down Trump. How it's done is secondary. The U.S. government got Al Capone, but U.S. government got Al Capone not for murder or any of the really you know, horrible things he did. The U.S. government got Al Capone on tax evasion, sent him away for eight years for that. And, you know, I don't hear people bitching and moaning that, oh, you know, it was just a pretext, uh, set a bad precedent, it encouraged the mafia to retaliate, any stuff like that. 
And is getting Al Capone on tax evasion any different from going after Trump about the Stormy Daniels cover-up? Only if you're caught in this trap that Trump has set for us, that public perception matters over everything rather than the facts. People's concern that this is a weak case and so forth is really just about the fear and the, it's obvious the, the reality that this is not going to sway Trump's base. I mean, nothing's going to sway Trump's base. I, I don't think that's true that people, I mean, I'm not a lawyer. I, I can't offer any enlightened position on the charges, but a lot of people who are being interviewed in the media are saying that this is a very weak case because of the way it mixes state and federal laws. And that's nothing to do with public perception. That has to do with the fact that usually these kind of crimes are treated as misdemeanors. And if you want to make it a felony, you have to make it a that you that you are committing the misdemeanor to cover up another crime or something like that. And so he's in this untested legal territory of trying to blend state and federal laws in the same charges and that this has a questionable legal basis. That's nothing to do with public perception. That has to do with whether or not there's a real case here at all. I, I don't agree with that because— You don't agree with the people who are saying that? Because I've heard that over and over again, and like every news story I've read says that. People are saying that. I, I don't agree with the idea that it's blending federal and state charges. In New York, it's a crime to cover up by tax, lying on your tax returns about another crime. And it's not case that it has to be a state crime that you're covering up by means of that. So that's not blending. That's just the fact that what the New York law says is that lying on your tax forms to cover up the commission of any crime is itself criminal, whether it's a New York state crime or a federal crime. That's just the way the law is. I'm not a lawyer either, but one of the people who does know the law, who I, I read and pay attention to, is Dahlia Lithwick. And in Slate last week, she said that really the fears over the, the weakness of the case or the alleged weakness of the case are a matter of people again and again being still deferential to, to Trump's base. Here's what she wrote. She said, I understand the tendency to worry over whether this case was strong enough to penetrate red America, you know, the red states. But I'm equally certain that no case, no matter how strong, would do so. So, you know, look, we'll, we'll see whether a Manhattan jury, hopefully he doesn't get the, the venue moved. We'll, we'll see whether a Manhattan jury uh, thinks that there's evidence to convict him. Maybe not. But I don't think that Alvin Bragg is some innocent, is unaware of the risks of various kinds of prosecutions. He's been involved in this stuff for a long time. This is a very... In terms of you, you, you talking about things taking a long time, this man took a very long time to get to this point. This was very carefully considered. It's not a Hail Mary pass where he's just taking a wild stab at Trump. Well, we'll see. Luckily, you know, I, I don't have to be a legal expert. I'm not going to take it upon myself to like un have to understand the nuances of New York law. I just know that a lot of people who apparently know what they're talking about or claim to know what they're talking about say that it's not the easiest case to prove. But, but sure, sure. It's not. I tell you what is a really easy case to prove, uh, trying to overthrow the United States government. Yeah, sure, it might not be the easiest case to prove, but, but look at this in the context of multiple prosecutions. Yeah, but in the, the following context, if the goal is to bring Trump down, are you going to do that 
with fewer prosecutions that are very carefully chosen and that maximize your chances of winning? Or are you going to maximize your chances of bringing Trump down by throwing everything at him? I think it's the latter. And I, I, I really do think that it, it's people's unwillingness to say that the Trump base has to be fought, that this is a proto-fascist movement quickly veering into outright fascism, that they're not going to be persuaded that they're just the enemy and we have to fight them and bring them down. I think that, that you got a lot of the commentariat who hasn't reached that point, may never reach that point, and what they're looking for is some magic silver bullet that is going to convince the 30% of the population that is totally behind Trump to see the error of their ways. And that's just not going to happen. After January 6th, anybody who doesn't see that it's not going to happen, they're never going to see that it's not going to happen, but it's not going to happen. What we have to do is stop this idea that we can run politics purely by, you know, persuading people this and that. We have to defend ourselves. We have to defend our democratic rights to, to a large extent. I mean, you, you, you know, yes, you're, you're right. People have been pointing out that it's not the easiest case. It, there's some complexity to the law in this case. But to a large extent, when people have been talking about, oh, it's a weak case, they have been talking about, oh, this isn't going to persuade this kind of voter and that kind of voter because it's not important. It's about a sex scandal, supposedly, and which it is partly, but it's also about trying to steal an election. So I, I really think that one needs to uh, look at the politics of the people who are kind of dissing Bragg's case here. You know, I think Trump and his people, they're now on the defensive, and hopefully that will continue if multiple prosecutions come down, but that doesn't mean that they're going to go away quietly. He's certainly not going to go away go away quietly. His support within the Republican Party has increased. It's hard to see now how anybody else becomes the Republican nominee unless he gets disqualified because he's incited an insurrection. But it looks to me like the Republicans are going to have a very, very hard time retaking the White House. They've already had a lot of problems, and now you got a fight back over abortion rights, even a percentage point movement here and there over Trump being obviously, you know, a felon criminal. I can't see how they can win, even with you know, the fact that we've got an electoral college, and even if they engage in massive efforts to eliminate early voting and impose ID requirements and disenfranchise ex-convicts. So what this means to me is not just the, you know, we sit back and say it's all done, you know, our work's been done for us. It's, that's not the case at all. The proto-fascist base in this country isn't giving up. Uh, for them, it's a fight to take their country back, and they'll do so by any means necessary. And we've seen that on January 6th and elsewhere. And we've got to be prepared for more of it big time. The threat of insurrection, the threat of a massive election subversion, the threat of vigilante violence, all of these are now even greater than they were before because of the poor electoral prospects of, of the Republicans. We'll have to leave it there. If Trump does end up in jail, I'm sure we will be discussing that one day. Up next, our conversation with Nick Rogers about socialism in the 21st century. We're recording this segment on March 29th, and we're very pleased to welcome to the podcast Nick Rogers, a political activist and writer from the UK. Nick was the guest editor 
of a special edition of the Journal of Global Fault Lines that came out in February of this year. Um, the issue featured a wide swath of writers discussing issues around uh, the feasibility of socialism in the 21st century, including an essay uh, by Andrew Kleiman, our, my co-host. So we've invited Nick on the podcast to talk about his contribution to this special edition and some of the issues raised by his essay and Andrew's essay. So Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot. Thanks for inviting me. And uh, I'm happy to uh, be here to uh, discuss the issues that we're going to discuss this evening. So Nick, you edited this special issue of the Journal of Global Fault Lines on the topic of envisioning a socialism for the 21st century. And this apparently was your brainchild. This was your idea to to do this this edition? That's right, yes. What um, uh, is discussing it was my idea. I was invited to guest edit the special issue by the, the permanent editor of the Journal of Global Fault Lines. I thought it was a worthwhile proposal because, in my view, socialists rarely discuss the nature of the society they hope to create, at least uh, in the last 30 or 40 years. Happy to discuss the ills of the present society and quite often how to organise a party and so on, lots of discussions about that kind of thing. And when socialists do talk about socialism, it rarely rises above very vague, abstract vision. So I think we need to concretize more what socialism is about. I also think there's problems with the way that socialism has, has been conceptualized over the years. And this in part goes back to um, uh, a misunderstanding, misinterpretations, distortions of what Marx wrote, particularly in the critique of the Goethe program. I wrote on that in 2018 for the Journal of Global Fault Lines, and it was as a result of uh, the uh, interest that was shown in that that I was uh, invited to guest edit this issue. You, you mentioned just now, Nick, that you think that a lot of times people on the left avoid discussions of what alternatives to capitalism actually look like, uh, except in kind of vague abstractions. Why do you think that is? I, I would agree with that assessment. But why is that? Is it just because a lot of people don't have concrete answers and they're more interested in uh, just building their parties? Uh, or is it because they have some concept of socialism where they don't think it's something that can be defined or worked out? beforehand? I think it's both of those. I think it's also as a result of the defeats that the workers' movement has suffered in the era of neoliberalism. And also, to be honest, the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union and uh, whatever you think about the form of society which they built has created a, a sense of demoralisation in the possibility of a real alternative to capitalism. And so people tend to, as you say, focus on day-to-day -day campaigns in one sense, building the party and so on. And the proposals which come out are generally of a social democratic reformist type. I think we need, if we are going to build an alternative to capitalism in the 21st century, it's insufficient to discuss it in these vague abstract terms. That's not go, going to attract anyone to support that kind of society if you just discuss it in those terms. And plus, I think there are real issues that we need to be debating and discussing. And we need to 
start thinking of what the solutions are. I guess there's also a tendency to think that Marx did not say much about the future society and that it's utopian in a sense to do that, that we don't build plans for the future. We have no ready-made plans. But I, I think that will be, if we don't have any plans come the revolution, uh, the outcome is quite likely to be a disaster. Yeah, there's even, at, at least in US politics, this real fuzzy use of the term socialism and capitalism so that a lot of people on the left, like the sort of Jacobinites, uh, people write for Jacobin Magazine, the sort of Sandernista, social democratic left, they uh, appropriate a lot of the language of like critiquing capitalism, but their politics are basically like very vanilla reformist, uh, like welfare state politics. It's like there isn't really a place to articulate an alternative to capitalism within their worldview because they aren't fighting for an alternative to capitalism. They're just fighting for a capitalism where you tax the rich and redistribute redistribute the wealth of the, the rich to social programs. So it, it can be confusing to people who are looking for a real theory of alternatives to capitalism to see all these people who appropriate a lot of the um, imagery and verbiage of you know, of anti-capitalist politics, but but then just present very middle-of-the-road reformist politics as their so-called answer to these social ills. And that's not the, the, the only bizarre appropriation of the term. I mean, looking at some of the pieces in the special issue that uh, Nick edited that I contributed to, and a few days ago we held a Zoom discussion. The topic was supposed to be envisioning a socialism for the 21st century, and a lot of space got taken up with envisioning a way for China to become a world power and maybe pull other countries along with it as an alternative to the U.S., but not a, a socialist alternative to the U.S., so envisioning a socialism has been recast as envisioning social democratic capitalism, envisioning market authoritarian capitalism, and, and so forth. I think that's right. Even those who uh, cast themselves as Marxists or revolutionary socialists tend in the day to day to be fighting very defensive reformist kind of struggles. Not that this is unimportant, but most of these defensive struggles are uh, around defending the gains of uh, the uh, post-war social democratic consensus. And they're not around pointing towards a vision of a radical, complete revolutionary alternative. On Jacobin, you're absolutely right. I saw Vivek Chipper head an article two or three years ago in which he um, was uh, saying that he explicitly said for the time being, socialists uh, would have to abandon the idea of uh, a breaking with capitalism and would instead uh, have to argue and fight for an alternative that was along the lines of the post-war Scandinavian arrangements, a welfare state with a mixed economy and so on. I agree as well with Andrew about China. Maybe we can come to this later because I know we're going to talk about the critique of the Goethe program, but that's this distortions of that extend to uh, supporters of the Chinese regime, such as John Ross, for instance. Uh, I was in a workshop four or five years ago 
in which he was arguing that um, the way the Chinese economy is organized uh, matches what Marx was writing in the critique of the Goethe program about the lowest phase of communism, which obviously I think we'll discuss this at length. And Andrew has written an excellent article in the special issue on on this, which uh, explains quite clearly that that's definitely not the case. And it's something which, uh, a fight which I've had over the last 10 years or so, when the interpretation of the critique of the Goethe program has been quite an important part of my thinking. Nick, when you uh, issued the call for papers, contributions to the special issue, you wrote that the goal of the special issue was to help answer whether socialism understood as a cooperative, egalitarian, and democratic way of organizing society remains a viable political project. Having seen the, the outcome the issue, you know, went live, uh, I guess, a month or so ago. Uh, having seen the results, do you think that the special issue helps to answer that question? Uh, and if so, how? I phased the goal of the special issue in uh, the way that you described, because um, to talk about socialism as a cooperative, egalitarian and democratic way of organising society, because I think the focus of what we're trying to do should be how we transform the way in which human beings relate to each other. The economics, which is what I wrote about, is important only if it uh, enables a truly emancipatory society to be born. So I said in my introduction to the special issue that I think the collection of articles makes a start on this question of whether this is a viable political project. I think a number of the main articles do address the issue of what socialism is and to some extent how it should be organised, but they're coming at it from a, a range of different perspectives. So it's quite an eclectic collection of, of, art, of articles, I think. Uh, which has its interest because it, anyone who reads the special issue will see a range of views and understand that there's a range of perspectives on this. The disadvantage is that it's not really a collective effort, if you like. For that to happen, you'd have, I'd have had to assemble people who've shared a perspective, if you like, and we would have had to meet during the course of the production of the issue to discuss what we were going to talk about. But I wasn't really in a position to do that. I'm not part of a collective Marxist group. So I put out the call for papers. I approached individuals who I knew, like Andrew, and uh, I waited for the results to come in. And to be honest, lots of the articles came in just before I had to send them off. I think it's a, a solid issue and uh, I'm quite pleased with it. And I think all the articles are of high quality and are interesting in their own way. But as a collection, it has both positive aspects and negative aspects. I wonder what you think about it. So, Nick, you wrote one of the papers in the special issue, and your topic was centered around the economics of socialism. Um, and in it, you criticize various alternative views, what you call utopianism and sci-fi socialism, as well as what's sometimes called market socialism. And it's polar opposite, the idea that a socialist economy is a planned economy. I'm curious about each of these critiques. First, can you explain to listeners what you mean by sci-fi socialism and utopianism? and what your criticism is of, of those currents? I coined the term sci-fi socialism to characterize 
a number of books which have emerged in the last 10 years, really, which I think identify new technologies as the avenue by which socialism will be achieved. I'd spent a paragraph dismissing these in a sense, and I teasingly called them sci-fi socialism. The books that I mentioned are Paul Mason's Post-Capitalism, which came out in 2015, and Aaron Bastani's book, Fully Automated Luxury Communism, which came out in 2020. I also referred to uh, you. I'm not sure if people in the US are familiar with Aaron Bastani. He runs Novara Media, which emerged sort of as part of the Corbyn developments in the UK, but kind of outside of the Labour Party at the same time. I actually say in a footnote that the uh, uh, thinking of both Paul Mason and Bastani were anticipated by Jeffrey Rifkin in uh, a 2014 book, The Zero Marginal Cost Society. Rifkin isn't a socialist, but he notes that in the realm of electronic goods, the extra costs involved in producing and distributing multiple items, millions or billions even, is not much more than the costs involved in just producing one, hence the zero marginal cost, whether this is a book, a film or an electronic game. He extrapolates from the online world to predict that the same tendency to exponential increases in productivity will play out in the production of material goods and services. And Paul Mason's book leans heavily on this, I would argue. He barely references Jeffrey Rifkin, but lots of his arguments are just the same. Paul Mason, he was formerly part of a UK socialist group, but he's now arguing that the working class never was a revolutionary class, that change isn't going to come from them, that it's going to come from the uh, new technologies, which are radically increasing productivity. And Aaron Bastani takes this kind of approach as well, as the title of his book suggests. I'm calling it sci-fi because I think there's something in our culture which thinks that whatever world we can create in our imaginations, as often depicted in science fiction, can become a reality and can become a reality sometime soon, whatever the laws of physics may suggest. problem I have with this entirely speculative writing, in my view, is that, that it's a way of avoiding thinking about the real problems we're going to face in making a socialist society work in the here and now. And I don't think a lot of this stuff is just around the corner. Aaron Bastani's talking about uh, putting manufacturing into orbit, putting solar arrays into orbit to reduce the human footprint on Earth, and going to asteroids and bringing minerals back from them so that we're not trashing the Earth. I think it's going to be a long time before, especially getting material from asteroids on an industrial scale bringing back hundreds of thousands of tons of usable materials is going to be realistic. And in some sense, Bastani is accepting the boosterism of the sort of tech bro billionaires who are talking about what they're proposing to do. I would suggest as a way of boosting the share prices of their companies. For instance, he mentions 2017 prediction from Elon Musk saying that SpaceX 
would send the first unmanned cargo transport to Mars in 2022. This is a book he wrote that came out in 2020. Obviously, that's not did not happen last year, and there's no prospect, as far as I can see, of that happening anytime soon. We've got to wait for, for NASA to be able to bring back a few vials of Martian rock from the Perseverance rover has deposited on the surface. And maybe that will come back within 10 years from now. It's going to be a long while before we're bringing back anything substantial. But in the meantime, we're faced Will, with a, an actually still expanding human footprint on our own planet that's pushing global warming towards some really dangerous tipping points that could see things spiral out of control, while at the same time, all kinds of ecosystems and the biodiversity they support are in a state of collapse. And billions of human beings live in countries with nothing much in the way of productive capacity to provide their populations with a decent standard of living. So these are really difficult problems that capitalism isn't going to solve promoting the economic development of the whole globe while not trashing the environment. I think it's going to be difficult. Things have gone so far that a socialist society would also struggle to solve these, although in my view, that's uh, the only hope that presents itself. So as I said earlier, this socialism has to involve a complete change in our relationship with each other and the planet. Yet uh, these sci-fi socialists are telling us that we don't really need to be that concerned about that because space technology is going to meet all of our needs. I didn't actually call the sci-fi socialists utopian, although I guess you could. On utopianism, I was talking about uh, a strain in uh, Marxist thinking, which I actually argued in my 2018 article comes down to us from Lenin's The State and the Revolution, which I hasten to add is an excellent groundbreaking work. But I think in discussing the distinction between the lower phase of communist society and uh, a higher phase, he uh, introduced too schematic an approach, uh, and which was uh, compounded by the fact that he called the lower phase socialism and talked about a higher phase as being full communism. I specifically, I summarise what Bertolt Ullmann wrote in a 1977 article about uh, a future without any conflict of any kind, uh, where we don't really need any political institutions. He really says this uh, because every problem that needed to be resolved would have been when humanity transitioned from socialism to communism. That, as far as I'm concerned, represents everything that's useless with this sort of sharp distinction between the two, or this over-schematic distinction between. I mean, I, I agree with what you say about thing that Allman wrote, which is really otherworldly. But with regard to the, the the sci-fi socialists, basically these are people who've given up, and they they're not only not dealing with socialism and its possibility in the here and now. They're basically telling us there is no possibility here and now. We just got to wait and let the machines do it. I think you're right to say it's a long way off, but even worse, 
the development of technology is the capitalist development of technology, as you were saying, and technology is not going to develop under capitalism in a way that's going to be beneficial for human beings. And we see that with, with the climate crisis. I'm, I'm fully in agreement with you. And by the way, this stuff goes back a good deal further than, than Jeremy Rifkin even. This is what you're calling the sci-fi conception. This was propounded in a big way and was very influential in the 60s. It was propounded by Herbert Marcuse, you know, well-known philosopher from the Frankfurt School. And he began this tradition of uh, misrepresenting what Marx said in the Grundrisse about uh, machines and workers standing to the side of the process. He had it as, even though he knew German very well, the workers stand outside the process. And Raya Dunyevskaya, who was the founder of Marxist humanism, had a big debate with him about this. But he just basically said, working class isn't revolutionary, just like Mason. And the only thing we can do now is engage in a great refusal, the development of technology is what's going to save us. That tendency is there whenever there is giving up. And he basically gave up on the struggle for a new society here and now. And that's what he came up with instead. We could probably sit around and criticize sci-fi socialism for a long time, but for the interest of time, maybe we can get on to some of your critique of uh, market socialism. In the 80s and 90s, lots of different models of market socialism were put forward by people like Alec Nova, John Romer, David Schweikart, uh, many others. Uh, you dismiss all of that in your paper, and you say flatly that a market socialist society would not be socialist. Why is that? When I, I discuss market socialism or the retention of a market uh, in greater length than uh, I do this sci-fi socialist thing, uh, again, I'm setting the parameters for the main part of my discussion, which we're going to come on to next about planning and so on. I'm engaging primarily uh, on this with what Alec Nove wrote in 1983 in The Economics of Feasible Socialism. And he posits an economy in which you have nationalised industries which are run by the state, if you like, in a non-competitive way, but still producing commodities and services and so on. Collectively owned industries that are competing with each other to produce commodities in a market and worker cooperatives which uh, are, again, competing with each other in the context of market to produce commodities. So basically, you retained enterprises that are competing with each other to sell commodities in order to maximise their income and keep their costs down. This is profit-seeking activity, and uh, I think you're going to retain most of the behaviour that goes along with capitalism. Alec Nova and most of the other market socialists are positing that you can get rid of the capitalists as a class and either have uh, competitive firms that are collectively owned or owned by the producers and that uh, this will lead to a transformation. That in and of itself is true, will get rid of exploitation, but you're likely over time to see a rise in social inequality as some enterprises prosper at the expense of others. And therefore, you're going to get the concentration and centralization of economic units and consequently the monopoly behavior that comes along with that. Competition would impel economic units even when owned by the workforce 
to suppress the income going to consumption wages in order to compete more successfully and obviously worker-owned cooperatives that weren't doing well and weren't in danger going out of business would be under the greatest pressure to do with this. You'd get a tendency for economic decisions to be based on short-term considerations. Profit maximisation would lead to gross distortions in the production of use values, including there would be an ongoing tendency to uh, ignore the environmental impact of production. And you'd also get the continuation of all the wasteful unproductive activities such as advertising, uh, financial sector, financial instruments and so on that go along with capitalism now. And you'd therefore have uh, the emergence of an economic cycle of boom and bust and economic problems around unemployment when firms go bust and inflation. Uh, But above all, you'd have a tendency towards the restoration of full-scale capitalism because the members of a workers' cooperative would have a big disincentive to take on new members. Uh, and Alec Nov actually discusses this in the, in the context of Yugoslav workers' self-management. The owners of worker-owned cooperatives would maximise their own, own income if they employed wage labour when they needed to expand their workforce rather than to uh, expand the number of worker owners in the enterprise. Just to be clear, did you say that you thought that there would not be exploitation in market socialism? Is that what you said? I'm saying the the argument that the market socialists make is that you remove the capitalists, that the profits in worker-owned cooperatives, the surplus value which is produced would belong to the worker owners of those firms. You'd have state firms and the uh, surplus value that would be produced would go to the state. So you continue to have the full cycle of value production, commodities, and therefore surplus value would be produced, but it wouldn't be owned by a capitalist class. However, quite quickly, as I argued, I think that uh, especially the state in that sense would be operating as a capitalist and also you would have, as I was arguing, the producer-owned enterprises would be seeking to employ wage labour to cover short-term fluctuations. And even as they expand, it would be in their economic interests in terms of the income the owners of the worker cooperatives have if they did not expand the number of worker owners and actually employed additional workers. And obviously, those workers would be directly exploited. Even abstracting from issues of the state and owners versus non-owner workers, this idea that there wouldn't be exploitation because there wouldn't be the distinct legal form of private property by non-worker owners, it's really the most kind of pathetically superficial understanding of how capitalism functions, very superficial, legalistic. Marx's own view was very clear, and it was the exact opposite. He said, on the one hand, these producing cooperatives are prefiguration, so to speak, of the new society. But he says, as long as they remain within capitalism, the workers in association become their own capitalists. Okay, it's not that they get rid of capitalists, it's that they, the workers, 
are workers on the one hand, and then they treat themselves as capitalists on the other hand. They exploit themselves in just the ways that you were saying. You got to produce cheaply, so you, you, you work yourselves to death, you suppress wages, you engage in speed up and all these other things. You don't need some different group of people to do it to you if you're doing it to yourself. And as long as you got this competition, I think you're quite right, Nick, as long as you get this competition as the system in which people have to operate and maximization of value is the, the key goal, you're going to have the exploitation, even if it takes a very different legal form. I think you're right. What you would have is all the laws and motion of capital that Marx described would continue to uh, exist. Every single one of them would continue to exist, including the tendency to drive investment over worker consumption. I don't think it represents a break with capital, with the laws and motion of capital, with the social system we have now. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Anja Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing an all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice. 
and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. Well, what about a planned economy? That's also a target of your paper, right, Nick? I actually believe that a socialist economy is a planned economy, and I see this paper as a defense of that. What I am questioning is conception of planning that lots of socialists seem to have. I've got a proposal for something that uh, I call goal-directed economic coordination, which is an attempt to capture what planning actually is about, actually is understood by any organisation in the real world, and to make a case for a conception of socialist economic planning that's flexible, responsive, while also catering for a high degree of economic decentralization, which I think you need in order to empower the citizens of a socialist society in their communities and workplaces. So I've got two targets to this. Partly I have in mind Lenin's assertion in the state and revolution that in the lower phase of communism, all workers become employees of one huge syndicate and that the economy is a single office and a single factory, which I, in the paper I wrote in 2018, which was called Lenin's misreading of Marx's critique of the Goethe program, I touch on that and say this is an area that is under-conceptualised by socialists and that we need to be discussing it. So in a sense, what I write in this issue is taking up the challenge that I laid out uh, five years ago. But really, my paper is structured around a re-examination of Alec Nove's critique of socialist planning that I mentioned before. I see him as making a twofold critique of what he sees as the traditional Marxist view of economic planning. And by the way, early on, when he's talking about what Marx thought about socialism and how the economy would be organised, he leans heavily on what Bertolt Ullmann wrote in 1977, which Andrew Kleiman agrees with me is an otherworldly vision of what the possibilities are. So these two critiques are first, it makes a, a distinction between ex ante and ex post. People seem to use Latin terms to discuss this. A priori, a posteriori is also used, but really it's before and after. So Alec Nove says that a planned economy in, determines its allocation of material goods and services prior to their production, the allocation, while in a market economy, that allocation is determined ex post once the commodities are exchanged in the market and the consumers decide what the allocation is. And his critique is that socialist planning is therefore inflexible, finds it difficult to meet consumer needs and so on. I looked at a number of socialist theorists who challenged what Alec Nove uh, wrote and particularly what Ernest Mandel wrote uh, a couple of years afterwards in an article in New Left Review. And Mandel accepts the, these terms of the debate uh, and attempts to defend the idea that socialist planners need to know in advance where everything that's going to be produced is going to go for the whole year, say. He even proposes consumer questionnaires in which each of us would tick off what we wanted for the coming year. He's talking about production councils and so on. He talks about the leather industry uh, and he says, say everyone's 
allowed six shoes a year. He says we could indicate in advance what type of shoes we wanted, what style, colour and so on in these questionnaires. And that consequently the uh, production units could match their production to the precise needs of each consumer. That just strikes me as not a way things can possibly work in real life and anyway would be enormously bureaucratic and incredibly clunky and so on. Also, I think it's completely unnecessary because over the course of a year, an economic unit is going to be producing multiple cycles of shoes, for instance, just taking the same example that Mandel did. And there's no reason why they can't see what types of shoes, what styles, what colours and so on consumers are selecting in the outlets for shoes and flex their production to produce more of what's in demand, so to speak, and uh, less of what's not flying off the shelves. I'm not suggesting a, a competitive economic units, but economic units that uh, can uh, behave in a, a responsive and flexible way. And I think you could do this with a whole range of consumer items and uh, that we can learn from the way that capitalist companies plan their production cycles and supply chains and so on. As Mandel says, given the degree of socialization of production in a modern economy, most of what happens in a capitalist economy isn't actually mediated by the market, but happens within firms. Nove's other critique of socialist economic planning is that it has a top-down centralising logic that leads to the concentration of political power, authority and control at the centre and that uh, the Marxist idea of that the state would wither away entirely illusory and on that basis that's why he's arguing for market socialism, because he says the only alternative to vertical subordination is horizontal links. But horizontal links, that is between producers and between them and consumers, equal production for exchange, which is some species for the market. I'm disagreeing with Nove on this. And I argue that if we accept my conceptualization of what planning is, as preparing in advance to respond flexibly and responsibly to a range of possible eventualities, then I think you can have as much decentralization of economic activity as the citizens of a socialist society decide they want. So just to emphasize, this is not a competitive economy, but a cooperative one. There's open information about what all economic units are producing and their plans for the future in exactly the same way that the plans of local authorities and public authorities now for schools, housing, health services and so on are published in advance and subject in Britain to freedom of information requests and so on. That would overcome the fragmentation of decision making. That's a feature of a capitalist economy where competitive economic units keep commercial secrets and so on. And it would allow decision makers at all levels of the economy to be much clearer about the impact their plans will have because they know what everyone else, what all other production units are doing. And I don't think it would need the central plan is to impose a detailed set of commands. But there is a role for the centre in terms of coordinating the activities of different production units, drawing up strategic plans around 
the division of economic output that Mark discusses in the uh, critique of the Goethe program, social provision, reinvestment, administration, what goes to individual consumption and so on, accounting for the use of labour time in the economy, making sure that economic development takes place in a balanced way, protecting and restoring the environment meeting social objectives around uh, moving towards a a more egalitarian, perhaps needs-based income distribution and reducing hours of work, we can discuss that, and generally coordinating economic activity throughout the economy. First of all, I mean, I'm glad Nick is is, is thinking about this. It's important. I, I do think, however, that way too much attention has been directed to this issue of planning versus markets and so forth, as if the main issues involved in the socialist transformation of the economy and society are technical. I don't think they're mostly technical. I think it's the the key issues are about the purpose of production, which is not a technical issue, and about whether labor is directly or indirectly social and whether we're producing value or or, or not. And the, the, the drive to make it Uh, into a technical issue, I think, plays into the hands of those who want to make it seem like the collapse of the USSR and the failure of state capitalism is not because of the class nature of their society, but because of certain technical problems that didn't get worked out uh, correctly, which I don't think is the the case at all, although there were such problems. You know, as an economist, I'm, I'm, I'm listening to Nick say, well, what we need to do is this, that, and the other, have all these different goals. And yeah, the problem is, speaking as an economist, you can't go around optimizing everything at once. You can only have one thing that you maximize or minimize or or whatever it is that can take various things into consideration. But the point is operating with a lot of distinct goals doesn't work because there are trade-offs, there are conflicts, and, and, and so forth. You know, I've written these, these some of these criticisms to, to Nick, and he, he's responded. But I think that the, the thing that is, to me, most troubling about Nick's conception here is, to me, is kind of this idea that the consumer is king and that the purpose of the economy is to produce what the consumers want. And like I say, like, well, what about the consumers want coal and nobody wants to risk their, their life going down into the coal mines? And you could say, well, so we won't have coal, but who wants to clean toilets, right? And who wants to be in an office shuffling and filing papers? Who wants to do this and who wants to do that? Most of what we have to do, even, you know, in a socialist society, is not stuff that like, we really want to do. So I, I think that what we, we have to think about a, a different conception in which it's not just like we make the consumer king, except for what people don't want to do. There are degrees of not wanting and there are degrees of what people are willing to do and the economy has got to be responsive to that. I mean, it certainly has to be responsive to issues of overwork, issues of unsafe working conditions, boring work, and so forth. So a lot of things just have to mesh. And so I'm just very skeptical about like all of this kind of decentralist stuff, because it looks to me like if, if your goal is to do what consumers want, then potentially you can do this. I'm not convinced you could do it without competition, uh, but potentially you, you, you could do that. But I think that we would run into a lot of trouble by making it basically like a consumption-oriented economy. 
so I don't see myself as advocating a, an economy or society where the consumer is king. Obviously, everyone is both or most people are both a worker and a consumer. But it's a question of identifying what you want to produce. And obviously, there needs to be a discussion about that. And uh, this is goal-directed economic coordination. So you're deciding how much you want to devote to schools and health and so on, and how much you want to devote to uh, consumer goods, what individual consumers are going to need. And there's uh, decisions to be made there. I, I mean, this is why I'm against Bertolt Olm and kind of crazy utopian stuff, because I think there will be political decisions to be made at, uh, during every phase at all stages of a socialist society and that we're going to need political institutions and structures where those can be made. I'm not proposing what those political institutions and st structures ought to uh, be, but there will be conflict and conflicting objectives that uh, society, that individuals, even as workers and as consumers, will um, be striving after. So I agree with Andrew that all these things need to mesh. And I'm not saying the consumer is king by any means at all. I think that one of the biggest issues we face is the sort of linked environmental crisis of global warming and uh, crashing biodiversity. And I think that's going to require us to be as constrained as we possibly can in what we produce by also discussing, I know, and Andrew discusses as well, uh, Marx's concept of labour certificates. So a socialist society is a society without a market, without commodities. Lots of people think that in order to get rid of money, the only alternative to that is consumers freely selecting whatever they want from uh, from outlets, uh, which is kind of uh, Mandel does this thing of conflating the lower phase of communism or so socialism, as he calls it, with uh, the transition from capitalism to socialism, completely ignores uh, Marx's discussion of labour certificates. This implies that if you're deciding as a society how much of the output of the economy is going to be devoted to consumer goods. That's a constraint on what uh, the members of that society as consumers are going to consume. But you still need to make decisions about what those consumer items would be. And I just think it's daft to say that you're going to get each individual member of that society to say exactly what they want in terms of uh, types of shoes or say you've got a production unit that can produce red and blue t-shirts you wouldn't need to decide at the beginning of the year what proportion of red and blue t-shirts you're going to produce you would look at what was happening to stocks and if people decided they wanted more red than blue you you could adjust production we're talking about planning each production cycle needs to be planned. You need to, even a capitalist firm needs to plan what it's going to produce in each production cycle. But you don't need to plan to that level of detail a year in advance. I, I think you can be more reflexive, ref, more flexible and responsive than uh, that. But anyway, this is uh, not saying by any means I have all the answers. I'm just uh, engaging with uh, some of the, with specifically with the debate between Alec Nova and uh, Mandel and uh, uh, critiquing some of that. Yeah, uh, well, you brought up the 
critique of the Gotha program, which we have discussed on this podcast before. And so obviously we think it's worth discussing, but what are your opinions? Why, why are you interested in still talking about something that was written so long ago? It's one of the works in which Marx very explicitly talks about what the future society is going to look like. And you could ask the question, why are we putting so much weight on what Marx thought about that? One of the reasons why I think it's important to go back to the original source, if you like, is precisely because there's been so much misrepresentation, distortion and misunderstanding around what Marx was actually saying, which is an aspect of in my 2018 article. I discussed this and Andrew uh, has written an excellent article in which uh, I think he uh, blows out of the water lots of the sort of uh, distortions which are attributed to Marx himself. So it's not that I think that we have to restrict ourselves in the discussions we have about socialism to Marx's thoughts on this. But uh, since we have a uh, theoretical framework in which we critique what capitalism is from a Marxist perspective, I think it is useful to at least get right what uh, uh, our understanding of what Marx wrote. I think one of the key reasons people have misunderstood the critique of the Gotha program is that they have not understood Marxist theory in capital. They haven't understood the terminology he uses, and they haven't understood basic facts about capitalism. So, like, he's describing this incredibly different society, you know, the lower phase of communism. It's nothing like capitalism, but because people have a kind of weak understanding, a legalistic understanding of capitalism and so forth, they don't even see it. So they just focus on the labor certificates, right? But uh, they don't see that what the lower phase of communism is really is a communist society. And it has it has to do with just not understanding the theory of capitalism that Marx uh, puts forward in capitalism, I think. Right. So in the special issue, the paper that I wrote uh, is a close reading of what the critique of the Gotha program says about the revolutionary transformation of capitalism into communism. And I'd like your thoughts, Nick, about two of the things that I argue in the paper. Uh, first, I argue that Marx's view was that social change isn't driven by politics or law or income distribution. These things, he says, are determined by society's relations of production. So the fundamental thing that needs to be changed isn't the income distribution or the laws and so forth or who's in charge. The fundamental thing that needs to be changed are society's relations of production. And second, I argue that Marx thought that the transformation of capitalism into communism requires that work become directly social rather than indirectly social as it is today. First of all, uh, I'd like to thank you for, for what you wrote. And I put it first in the uh, special issue because uh, I, I think it's important. And in a sense, it blasts away decades worth of encrusted distortions uh, that occupy our minds about what Marx said. So first of all, on the uh, question of uh, the priority of social relations of production, as you say, uh, Marx says this very explicitly in the critique of the Goethe programme about uh, the whole issue of distribution. He says there shouldn't we shouldn't be uh, uh, putting so much importance on this because it's the social relations between producers which uh, he's concerned about. 
And in a sense, it's what I was saying about uh, if you retain a market in socialism and competitive economic units and so on, whatever your political intentions and ambitions, you're not going to uh, escape from the uh, uh, laws of motion of capital. I know we've actually exchanged emails on this about the uh, political deterministic uh, critique that you have of uh, uh, the way lots of socialists think about this. Not sure we've got time to discuss this, but I think um, the move to socialism is a conscious revolutionary act. So it is something that the workers have to carry out it's uh, it's a revolutionary act. And to that extent, it is politics that comes first in a way. Marx in the civil war in France talks about the commune being, I think, the political form at last discovered in which to work out the economical emancipation of the working class. And the new mode of production is of itself. So it's conceived of consciously in advance, brought about in that way. And it is a society in which the economy is socially regulated and the producers are freely associated. I'd be happy to discuss this with you, but you sometimes in what you're saying seem to be suggesting that that the move to socialism will be a spontaneous thing. That's kind of what Paul Mason is saying about uh, the role of technology and uh, the fact that you don't have uh, a social class, the working class, which is the agent of the change. But the Marxist position, as we all know, is that the working class will bring about this uh, change. I agree with you, though, that if you attempt to run an economy on a non-socialist basis, as we were discussing before, you're going to end up reverting to capitalism. I also think that if you sort of have a concentration of political and bureaucratic authority and power, that will also undermine uh, the uh, emancipatory aspect of the new society. On yeah, I, I don't have any like whiff of spontaneity uh, yeah. as the way this is going to happen, you know, in the sense that, that you're talking about it, actually. I mean, spontaneous in the sense of uh, independent emancipatory movements of workers and, and, and others, yes. So they're self-directed. They're not under the control of the left or other politicos and so forth. But there needs to be, I think, a, a lot of thought and, and planning ahead of time. My point is really that when people give the answers to what's the new society going to be and they say, well, the worker is going to be in control or we're going to have the state do this and that, to my mind, that's not an answer. Okay, to my mind, all, all you're doing is saying who's going to be deciding, not what the decisions are going to be, and they don't. Those answers don't go to the question that you very rightly posed. How are you going to ensure that this is, in fact, not capitalism in disguise and will not revert to capitalism or something worse? So when you just talk about the political forms, whether they're good or bad or whatever, when you just talk about the political forms by which decisions will be made in the new society, you're begging the question. That, that's what my you point. Mean. Okay. In that sense, I agree with what you're saying. In terms of directly social labour, I think the point you make, Andrew, about socially necessary labour time not being uh, present in socialism is important. Uh, that the use values produced by the economic units that are less productive will contribute to the total output and an hour of work contributed by a worker 
in the less productive unit will count the same as an hour of work contributed by a worker in the more productive unit uh, for the purposes of labour certificates and and so on is absolutely correct as far as what Marx's conception of it is and also in the sense that uh, we're not talking about a competitive economy so uh, we're not talking about economic units that are less productive being put out of business for that reason there will be have to be mechanisms where we discuss what techniques we want to encourage and how we spread best technological practice and so on but it's not going to be on the basis of uh, some economic units prospering at the expense of others so i agree with you on that point i actually think marx had a wider concept in mind when he describes labour as indirect in a commodity producing economy and direct in a socialist economy. I was looking at this section of chapter one of the first volume of Capital on fetishism of the commodity, which in general is extremely important as far as everything we've been discussing here, because it actually is where Marx talks in some depth about how an association of free producers would actually work. And it looks to me as if he's describing labour in a commodity producing economy as indirect, because the social relations are a relation between things and only in a non-commodity producing economy do the labours of each producer appear as direct social relations. When Marx is talking about directly social labour and indirectly social labour, I think he's referencing that. I didn't express that uh, at all well in uh, what I wrote on this in my article in the special issue. Right I, to take, I got take... it and I think you're right. Absolutely. When Marx says, uh, let's look at these other modes of production, he goes into the patriarchal family and Robinson Crusoe and association of free human beings. All of that is in contrast to commodity production. It's all, yeah. all in contrast to indirectly social labor. Absolutely. Okay. okay. Well, <clears throat> we could discuss a lot of these issues a lot more, but we do have time constraints. So I think we should wrap things up. Um, Nick Rogers, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Yes, thanks, thanks so much, much, Nick. It's been enjoyable. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course, to share with all your friends and enemies. 